So one of the issues that happens with ERGs is leaders are tapping um, people within their company because they have lived experience and they're like, okay, this is the person to lead this ERG. Right. Um, but we forget that just because someone fits a de demographic doesn't mean that one, they're up for that sort of leadership position. Um, maybe it's not a space that they're ready to occupy. Um, there is also the question of has that person been able to work through and address some of their own trauma so as not to bring that to the space? Are they willing to deal with and process other people's trauma as relates sometimes to the, those spaces? Um, there's just a lot to take on. And I think not all leaders are being mindful in the ask um, in that regard. Um, the other part of that is if you're going to ask people to do that work, what's the compensation? So, so often um, we're asking people to do that work and it is an add-on to an already overwhelming schedule. Um, and so like one of the biggest things that, that leaders could do is make this actually a budgeted position. Um, and provide training <laughs> and long-term support um, in order to make it happen well. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right. So Jackie, I know you as an amazing DEI leader and someone that just continues to bring joy and shifts in perspective. Um, but for those that don't know you yet, could you talk, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So um, I am uh, originally from Ohio and uh, uh, immediately after graduating college, um, I went to school for uh, psychology and English. Um, I moved to South Korea and um, that was as a Fulbright scholar. Um, I taught for six years there, um, uh, most of which was in the public school system, um, but two years was with the Korean Naval Academy. Um, where I kind of got to work with cadets to help on their English um, so that they could better communicate with uh, U.S. Naval forces that were there in the country as well. Um, and then I, I came back to the States in 2008 um, in order to do my master's degree at Duke, uh, which was a master's in teaching. Um, and from that point, uh, I taught in Durham Public Schools for 12 years. Um, and basically, I've, I've had a 19-year teaching career, um, and the majority of the schools that I taught in um, were schools where, like, 80% of the students uh, were Black and Brown students or part of the global majority, um, and also a lot of the schools that I worked in received uh, Title I funding. Um, so, so much of my time was spent advocating for student needs advocating for family needs. Um, and I started to see um, just so starkly in front of me, 
that a, a lot of the issues that my kids were having were systemic um, and there were barriers in place um, that were preventing them um, unlike many other people from getting to the same end goal and so I was like you know I'm providing this psychological safety for kids in my classroom and we're having these great conversations and great learning experiences but they're going to go into the world into workplaces and communities that don't provide them these same safeties um, and what can I do about that <laughs> And so I started to get more politically involved um, and working on campaigns, especially the campaigns of Black women who I saw as individuals who, if they had a seat at the table, could provide a perspective that was a lot more inclusive um, and had lived experiences that could change some of the things that I was seeing. Um, and then uh, just this last year, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll back that up <laughs> a little before that. Um, so when I was 39, um, I also came out as queer, initially identifying as a lesbian. Um, and then after another year of introspection, came out again as trans non-binary. Um, we we're all on a journey to discover ourselves. Um, but I, I, I often say I probably wouldn't have gotten there without my students um, because they were so much a part of seeing me before I saw myself. Um, and so with that also came another layer um, when you talk about the DEI perspective, um, because I, I immediately saw shifts in people's behaviors and responses to me um, as a qualified educator in the field. And where before I'd had accolades and um, people looking to me as an authority, um, I started to see some of that privilege slip away. Um, based on uh, my outed identity. And uh, then just this last year, uh, I kind of came to the conclusion with a lot of the, the things that I had seen and experienced, um, and particularly um, some of the workplace discrimination that I experienced myself as well, um, that the universe sometimes sends you hard things in order to tell you where you need to be and what you need to be doing. And that's when I decided to move fully into DEI work, um, which was sort of what I was doing <laughs> within my education work for, for all the time that I was doing it. That's amazing. Yeah, you said a lot there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really And I really love the points uh, regarding your identity as well as um, allyship and being able to support people um, based on your experience. And I think, um, and I, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is, yeah. you know, as a working parent of two children, um, I know you have an interesting perspective on uh, life, you know, as a teacher and things like that. But um, what is that one thing or a few things that you wish more employers acknowledge or uh, do to support working parents? This is such a layered question. Yeah, okay. And it was a layered question initially. And then you add the experience of the pandemic to it. Oh, and who? Um, so one of the things that the pandemic revealed about um, schools in general is that we've turned them into childcare facilities, um, yeah. particularly in this country. Like the, the mindset is my kid's going to go to school and that's my childcare. Um, and some of that is because employers have been let off the hook in providing wages that allow people to pay for actual childcare. <laughs> um, 
And, and there are several problems with this mentality. It reduces the value of education and the expectation of learning in the K-12 setting. Um, again, it allows employers to kind of be off the hook for some of the things they should be providing employees, including things like flex and remote work situations that would allow parents to be deeply engaged in their kids' lives and, and productive employees too. Um, and what we saw was evidence of something that may well still be on the horizon because we're now in the middle of a huge teacher shortage um, and working parents are left in these situations. If schools can't run, they are trying to keep their employer happy, manage remote learning for their kids, meet outdated and culturally narrow views of professionalism and not have any time for their own self-care. <laughs> right. um, so what we saw is that schools and teachers um, aren't being resourced with everything that they need to do their work from salary and respect to glue sticks. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, we also have educational harm happening where students of color, queer students and neurodivergent students reported sometimes having better experiences with remote learning because it reduced the instances of bias or bullying or neurotypical learning expectations that they were experiencing in person. And so what I hope people saw, especially if they were both teachers and parents, is that employers, legislators, um, and schools were all failing to seek the creative and equitable solutions that are needed for kids and parents to thrive. Um, and that's not actually going to be resolved simply by returning to in-person school or allowing a little bit of remote work to employees um, because the teachers that are re returning are there holding up what is clearly an inequitable system on unfunded mandates, hope and goodwill, <laughs> and they're leaving in record numbers. <laughs> wow. Um and this is kind of an aside, but I think it's uh, relevant. What do you think about Abbott Elementary, the show? <laughs> Any thoughts I, on that? I think it's absolutely stellar. Um, yeah. You know, there are so many moments in that show where, like, I can recall a situation or a teacher or, you know, a, a student, and it's obviously amplified for right. the humor in the show. Um, but there's so much reality in some of it too. Um, so yeah, it's, it's both therapeutic and humorous to watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed, um, you know, a lot of the things regarding like the resources and the challenges that the teachers face when it comes to just fighting for things, like you mentioned, glue sticks, um, right. and just like things that really support the students in their education. Um, I can totally understand how that's like, something that you're really passionate about. Cause even For watching sure. the show, it's like, Hey, this is kind of funny, but like they're making, you know, they're really, it's satire, you know, almost. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, a there's a social statement. Absolutely. That's being made. And I remember an episode where it was like, they were trying to get carpets for their classrooms for the kids mm -hmm. to sit on and the carpets kind of fell off a truck. Yes. Um, <laughs> And I think of like all of the teachers who've tried to find super creative solutions to not having a budget, but filling their classrooms with things. <laughs> mm. Right. It's just beautiful. Um, and I noticed that you like supporting business owners, um, which that kind of leads to a conversation of supplier diversity, which I know, you know, you're, you're passionate about that too. Um, 
what can companies do to diversify their suppliers right now? Right. So one, I think if we're living and working in the United States, we have to recognize that based on the systems within which we're working, we're operating in a three-cornered house. And I heard someone say this somewhere and I can't remember who I can attribute it to, but it's not my original thought. (laughs) Um, And that three-cornered house is patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. And so when we talk about supplier diversity, in terms of that three-cornered house, we have to recognize we are still a long way from collapsing those inequitable systems and building something more equitable. So what are the choices that we can make that are going to disrupt those three elements in ways that um, help to prevent the harm that they create for certain groups of people? Um, And so if you talk about supplier diversity and you do an examination of your business, um, all of the money that is spent, be it from buying paper clips to services to event venues, there's a lot of money at stake. And so if you go through and you ask yourself the question, you know, how much of this money is going to suppliers who represent historically excluded groups? It's a really simple question. Um, How many of the businesses suppliers are black owned, woman owned, queer owned, immigrant owned, the list goes on. And are you going to be able to make a shift with every single supplier? Probs not. (laughs) But are you going to be able to change the profile of your business's spending in a significant way that is meaningful? Absolutely. It's about being deliberate and mindful. Um, And frankly, the best part of thinking about supplier diversity in my mind is you don't have to have a significant DEI budget to address this thing that is actually deeply impactful. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, I've noticed that sometimes companies will have like lunch and learns for their maybe like a priority list of um, uh, companies uh, right. in their sub- supplier diversity chain, essentially. Um, and those are the people that they kind of give preference to and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so I think networking and relationships seems like it's another good piece of that too, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing as when you're looking for your hires, where are you going? <laughs> to look right. for your candidate pool. It's the same concept with your suppliers. Are you looking at a diverse pool of suppliers? Mm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and I know you're really passionate about representation. Um, and so what do you think, or what do you, what, what do you do to feel a sense of community in your work? Um, what do you typically do to advise uh, employers to do, to support their teams um, when it comes to representation? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think regarding community, um, this might be one of the most challenging fields when we talk about that. Um, we get really mired in our work. <laughs> Um, but we need community in order to be successful at it. Um, Community is necessary in order to know what people need in this work. Um, And it's also necessary in order to keep ourselves heartened to keep going with the work um, because it is so challenging. Um, So lately, like I had a really great opportunity um, to do a leaders intensive um, for, for DEI uh, practice, practitioners with uh, the diversity movement. 
And that was an opportunity to work with a cohort and a group of other DEI practitioners who are being really mindful um, and having those relationships where you can reach out to somebody and be like, I've got this problem and I'm trying to figure out the right approach. You know, can we talk about how that might work? What your thoughts are? I'm kind of stuck here. Um, and then also within my own local community, I just moved here um, to the, the town that I'm in about a year ago um, for the 12 years prior to that, I was in Durham. Um, and so I'm actually working at building new relationships and local politics and um, just with other queer people in the community, um, again, to both tap into what are the local and, and major issues that we need to be aware of in my area um, and also to have people <laughs> Um, to to su support me and and to share community with absolutely, I honestly think our society, particularly our American society, struggles with teaching us how to build healthy community. We're such an I oriented society, um, but it's vital to this work. Now, the other part of that question: <laughs> uh, <laughs> employers supporting their teams. Um, and you know, that lately, a lot of that has been uh, companies looking at developing ERGs. Um, you know, how do we provide support communities for our employee, em employees? But we're also seeing all the time now, people talking about why ERGs are failing. Right. <laughs> and I think there are some really important takeaways um, that we can learn from that. Um, so one of the issues that happens with ERGs is leaders are tapping um, people within their company because they have lived experience and they're like, okay, this is the person to lead this ERG. Right. Um, but we forget that just because someone fits a de demographic doesn't mean that one, they're up for that sort of leadership position. Um, maybe it's not a space that they're ready to occupy. Um, there is also the question of has that person been able to work through and address some of their own trauma so as not to bring that to the space are they willing to deal with and process other people's trauma as relates sometimes to the, those spaces um there's just a lot to take on and i think not all leaders are being mindful in the ask um in that regard um, the other part of that is if you're going to ask people to do that work, what's the compensation? So, so often um, we're asking people to do that work and it is an add-on to an already overwhelming schedule. Um, and so like one of the biggest things that, that leaders could do is make this actually a budgeted position. Um and provide training <laughs> and long-term support um, in order to make it happen well. Yeah, I feel like one of the most challenging parts or aspects of ERGs is the fact that, I know they, they typically graduate from affinity groups to ERG, and then, hey, it's like, hey, we get some funding, and now we are gonna have some great events. This is gonna be awesome. Um, but I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, even the events, even though it might seem like it, it's easy, 
it's not and therefore i think it's not sustainable you know sometimes absolutely well the other part of it is is people start sometimes with this di committee committee or affinity group and it moves into the erg and because it sort of grows organically it doesn't grow with a centralized purpose um and so when we talked about lesson planning (laughs) Um, in schools, I often used um, a text called Understanding by Design. And it basically means you look at the end goals of the learning and you design backwards for what you want that outcome to be. Um, And I think if companies are more mindful about developing ERGs in that fashion, you know, if you start at the beginning and you say, are we trying to create a space that is simply for people to have psychological safety? Um, do we want this space to lend itself to greater representation from that group in our business's thought process and actions? Do we want this organization to provide mentorship and growth opportunities to develop and retain this group of employees? Um, do we want the ERG to provide education? And if we have these centralized questions answered, we can grow it with purpose. Yeah, totally agree. Um, uh, one of the speakers from one of our previous events, his name was O'Shawn Jefferson, wanted to shout him out. But he said, um, DEI without accountability is purely entertainment. And I was just like, wow, that's just really great. Um, so I do have kind of a funny, fun question for you. Um, so you've, you've really it seems like you've cracked the code in terms of like LinkedIn <laughs> engagement. I really loved your um, proposal video. All of the content that you share is always from the heart. Um, I know that it just seems like um, your background as a top tier teacher, it really shows through the content that you share, but like, what's your thought process on creating all this content? Like, how do you get through it? And yeah. Right. Um, I will tell you the same thing I told my students about writing. Um, so it doesn't happen by magic. Um, one, there's always a whole lot of the apply, but to chair principle. Um, I sit sit (laughs) down and I do a lot of planning. Um, I have a planning calendar and every time an idea comes up, I look at, okay, where in the calendar do I want to put this in? Um, and I'm looking at how diverse is the content even that I'm providing. Um, some days I'm talking about neurodiversity. Sometimes I'm talking about anti-racism. Sometimes I'm talking about LGBTQ issues. Um, but also what is the lens that I can put on top of that that helps people see the big picture of DEI or a, a question that they can look at within their own business. Um, And then how do I personalize it? Um, We connect with people through stories. Um, And I remind people all the time. So I was a senior in high school when Matthew Shepard died. It was 1998. Um, And he was killed for existing as a gay person, like bottom line. Um, And at that time, if you asked people, do you know someone who's gay? most people would be like, "Mm, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, And now 
statistically, nine out of every 10 Americans say they know someone who's, who's gay. But only three out of every 10 Americans say they know someone who's trans. And we now see inordinate amounts of violence against trans individuals in our society. And so I always think about what are the ways that we can personalize our stories that are gonna help people grow their connections and feel committed to caring about other people. Because I think it can, it can sh absolutely shift the ground. Right. Um, so yeah, it seems like it comes from a really thoughtful place. <laughs> and really, <coughs> sorry, That's still getting over this cold, but um, <clears throat> the other part of it too is, is it fun for me? Like, yeah. I want to have fun with the content too. And the, the bottom line is if I'm creating every day and I'm doing it just to put something up, I mean, that's not always worth it. Um, right. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's fun to grow a digital community. It really is. Right. Yeah. I've, you know, and I've been, I've been trying to make content, well, I'm making content on LinkedIn for a while, but when I see you do it, I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's something that they're doing. It's just like totally different. Um, but <laughs> it's cool to get your thought process on that. Um, and I know we're almost on time, but uh, if there was one action that you would urge our DEI listeners um, to take after listening to this today, uh, what would that action be? That one is easy for me. Um, one of my calls to action within DEI work is to help people learn and understand why we need to center trauma and trauma work in DEI. Um, so the more that I've come to understand this work, the more I've come to, to understand and realize that it is both trauma prevention and trauma treatment. Um, so if we think about the fact that people experience identity-based uh, trauma in their workplaces, be it racism, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, ableism, you know, all of it, when people experience at the level that it becomes trauma, it lives in their body. And we've started to learn, you know, if people have read The Body Keeps the Score, or there was a book I read a long time ago um, called Childhood Disrupted, where <clears throat> they make the connection between these trauma experiences that people have and the health disparities that they experience later in life, the comorbidities that they're having, um, the, the higher rates of depression, suicidal ideation, um, even development of autoimmune diseases. And if we look at that and we see that DEI work can prevent people from experiencing those traumas, we are actually doing the work to extend people's lifespans and even intergenerational work because of the epigenetic effects that that can have. And I think that can be a beneficial mindset for DEI practitioners because we can so easily burn out on the idea that we're not making big enough systemic change, but thinking of it in this regard helps us see like <laughs> a small thing can actually have a huge impact. <laughs> and the other part of it is I think it helps link a lot of different areas of DEI work and help people see why inclusivity across the spectrum is super important. 
so well stated jackie <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for the voices of inclusion podcast i hope you have a really good day you too it was my pleasure thank you if you're looking for dei assessments benchmarking tools sourcing support training and more look no further go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us the link is in the description we're looking forward to connecting with you next time